0: We discussed at length last night the federal government's announcement that it's moving forward with the goal of phasing out sales of all new gas-powered cars and light-duty trucks by 2035. Tonight, we look at the cost and the logistics of owning an electric vehicle. For that, we're joined by Mark Marmer. He's the owner of Signature Electric in Markham, Ontario. Mark, welcome to the program.
1: Hi, Sid. Thank you for uh, having me.
0: Uh, yeah, I, I wanted to, uh, I guess, start, I think most people are aware, certainly anybody who's investigated uh, purchasing an electric vehicle or even a plug-in hybrid vehicle, that the, the upfront cost is more. There's a lot of discussion about making up that cost over the life of the electric vehicle. I'm curious, though, what, what is, it, it's not cost-free to have an electric vehicle. What are those additional costs, and are we, as a consumer, uh, really educated about we, what we might be getting into as we go down this road? Sure.
1: So, just to begin with, this cost gap is starting to close up. We're having more and more vehicles. We're having uh, competition in the marketplace. And we're starting to have vehicles that are coming in at a, you know, sometimes a, a more affordable price. So, you know, that's sort of to begin with. Uh, what, I think when what we look- if I
0: could. Sorry, Mark, yep. if I could. Um, now, we have some companies, Tesla is the obvious one, that only produces electric vehicles. So if we were looking at, uh, a, you know, a Japanese car manufacturer, a North American car manufacturer, where you have the sort of identical SUV or the identical sedan, one is gas powered, one is electric. Uh, you say that gap is closing. Is there, is there a ballpark of what that difference might be right now?
1: Yeah, I, I think if you, you know, depending on, on where you were, you might be $5,000, something like that. But again, it's, you know, it's it's closing up a bit. I think initially we had this sort of cost of the batteries that uh, are, have become more an issue and, and that as battery production is ramping up and being more available. I just think it just you know, the market will sort of manage itself as time moves on. Uh, but you were asking about, Savings and, and and interestingly we we've been buying cars for a long time and we never asked about savings we bought a car it moved us around and we were perfectly happy suddenly we're moving to a slightly different platform and we have to be encouraged by the some cost savings but there are there are significant cost savings uh, you're probably at least a fifth of the cost of what you would be depending on how you're charging from fuel so you could save two or three thousand dollars a year on fuel alone which is you know, a very pleasant experience. Uh, the other thing is that the cars are really a much simpler platform. They're really just a, you know, an electric motor uh, driving the the wheels. You, we don't have all this um, transmission and spark plugs and all the other things that go along with it uh, that that make a, a gasoline vehicle, uh, you know, much more involved to to maintain. Uh, we don't go for um, Oil changes. There's no. There's other than the windshield washers. There's not, no, no fluids to change in the car, and over the life of the car, you spend a, a lot less maintaining the vehicle. And and it's really a very. Uh, on top of that, they're really a very pleasant driver, very quiet vehicle. Very very responsive vehicle. Uh, it, it's a, a, if you get in you drive one. There's there's things over and above the cost savings that make them a uh, you know a nice vehicle to own. I'll and aside people, from the fact that I, I, I never go to a, stand at a cold gas pump anymore. I haven't done that for seven years. That that alone is a pleasure.
0: Uh, well, I, From the people that I know that have driven uh, electric vehicles and own electric vehicles, that responsiveness is, is sort of the first thing that they mention. They, they just do love uh, the driving experience. And obviously, so you're not standing outside in the cold pumping gas. So how do you charge... I take it you're driving an electric vehicle. How do you charge it? Do you charge it at home? Are there charging stations near where you live?
1: Yeah, so I, I, I actually have uh, three electric vehicles. We have two at home, and uh, we have one that we use for the for our business. Um, I'm fortunate. I have a single-family home, so I'm quite able to put in chargers. Nobody, I don't have to ask anybody's permission. I pay for it. I come home. I park in my driveway or in my garage. I plug in my car every night, really the same way that you plug in your phone. And when you wake up in the morning, the phone's fully charged. My car is charged to whatever level I've selected, and I'm on my way. I do that every night, and that pretty much takes care of really my almost all my day-to-day. This weekend, I'm going to go visit my brother in Ottawa, and I might stop at a charging station in Ottawa where I'm driving a little bit of a further distance. That might take me 15 or 20 minutes of a stop on the way. Kind of typical of what I was doing, even when I had a gasoline car. I usually, stop to grab a coffee, go to the washroom, something of that nature. And um, you know, that's that's how that's how so I'm handling it. Uh, th- being that being said, I have the fortune of uh, the good fortune of having a single family home, and I don't have a hard time getting a charger. Not everybody has that ability.
0: Right, and there are uh, separate conversations that I do want to get into. Uh, what apartment dwellers uh, may be up against or or what some Uh of the solutions might be, Uh, people who live in condominiums and may have to get permission from a board or try and convince other people who aren't driving electric vehicles to get on board with charging stations. But I'm still curious, so in a a single family home, are you just plugging into a wall socket or did you have to upgrade uh, to 200 amps? Did you you install, uh, is it a level two charger, I guess, which charges uh, quicker than if you were just plugging it into a normal socket? How did you handle it?
1: So as soon as we have a few minutes, let's do this sort of level one, level two, level three, because uh, this sort of started at the beginning, and it causes a bit of confusion. So level one is I plug into a regular outlet, and I charge my car. It's something, and a lot of cars came with chargers that plugged into regular outlets. These char- charge at about six kilometers an hour. So it's not very fast, and probably for a car with a decent-sized battery, not a very practical way to do it but if you were you know at the cottage for a week or the weekend that might almost you know work for you. Uh, Most people are putting in level two chargers in their homes which is what I have. Um, A level two charger simply means that it's a 240 volt charger and provides AC power to the car and the car transforms that power to DC within the vehicle and they come in a, a bit of a range from now they're available sort of from 16 amps all the way up to 80 amps. So that's what, that's what you'll find in most people's homes. Just to, as we're talking about it, the Level 3 charger is slightly different. This is what we see by the highway about the size of a refrigerator, $50,000 charger, and it's providing actual DC directly to the battery, which is why they charge uh, faster. Obviously, this wouldn't be something that would be suitable for a home, but as you were traveling, this is the kind of um, charger that you would be using.
0: So, assuming most people, then, or or a lot of people, if they if they had the uh, the wherewithal, uh, they would probably go with that level two charger. What's the cost of that installation? Is there a ballpark there? Yeah,
1: I mean, I've been asked. Uh, I, I'm thinking if you sort of allowed maybe fifteen hundred or two thousand dollars, something like that. Uh, bearing in mind that every installation isn't exactly the same. Sometimes the panels right in the garage and. The charger is right beside it. And sometimes we have things like, uh, you know, separate garages that are on a laneway that aren't even attached to the house that needed a trench, the, you know, so they can fall into a range. But I think if I, you know, kind of gave you that number, that would be sort of what you should expect. That being said, you should, you know, get a proper quote, get an assessment, have it done by a licensed electrical contractor. These uh, should seem obvious.
0: Right. And then in terms of, of someone's home electric bill, if they're charging and, the other thing I guess that we probably have to keep in mind is we're not charging from zero every time we would plug in an electric vehicle. It's just like your your gas-powered vehicle. Sometimes you're just topping it up from a quarter down or or what have you? But um does it does it put a strain on the on the monthly utility bill? Well, there will
1: be extra um energy use and you will it's something you're going to pay for. Um but in certain areas like what's happened here, uh, I live in Toronto, and we have, uh, in order to encourage the use of power at night, they've come up with an ultra-low overnight rate. So we now charge our cars starting at about 11 o'clock and pay, uh, I think, 2.4 cents per kilowatt, a very, very low rate. And, um, you know, it, you could be 50 or $60 more at the end of the, uh, you know, of the month. Um, I, I don't know too many people that are managing private gas car and manage 50 or $60 for, uh, for gasoline.
0: Uh, we talked before the break, Mark, about uh, those who live in uh, single-family homes, and maybe you want to upgrade to what would be considered a Level 2 charger, which charges a, a little bit more quickly, and there is a cost to installation. I think you pegged it, ballpark, around 1500 to $2,000. There might be an uptick in your electric bill at the end of the month of 50 to $60, but that would be, I think you're right, for the average driver, far less than we might be paying for fuel at this point. Uh, I can't help but think of those who live in apartments and condos. for. You know, if someone lives in an apartment complex today with and there's 200 cars in that parking lot, and even if 10 of them were electric vehicles, are are we getting set up for that? Are we set up now or are people uh, just not able to, uh, to really get into this market right now if they don't live in a single family home?
1: So this is actually an enormous part of our business. We do, uh, if you're familiar with Toronto, we have a lot of condos and uh, these these are customers of ours, and we do a lot of work uh, for EV charging in condos. Um, It's it's an expensive proposition. It's a bit of a challenging proposition, but we have some things that work to our advantage here. We have um, a right to charge that's handled through the Condo Act. Somebody who lives in a condominium requesting a charger uh, has to be responded to in 60 days, and really there's, there's no way to say no, and I think that, frankly, between that and the fact that the boards uh, of directors are, would like to have EV charging, I think this is this tends to 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 help to make it more possible. It's certainly a much more complex and it'll be a more expensive proposition than doing it in your home, but we have been successful. Uh, the other thing is that we have standards for building. Um, here, we just recently in the in the city of Toronto. Have the Toronto Green Standard, and that's asking for new buildings to be 100% EV ready. So this is an advantage. This is something that's happened in areas in BC for quite some time, and in fact, BC was waiting was did not have the sort of right to charge, and just recently that came into their legislation. So these things are coming together because I think everybody sort of this home charging is the at the moment is the best way to own an EV. And the sort of the next low hanging fruit is how are we going to help these people who live in condos uh, and and you're right, apartments, apartments are a bit more challenging um, to be able to have home charging. And and it's working. It's not simple. It's not easy. But, um, you know, there are people working on making this happen.
0: You know, and I guess like anything, if you, if we wind the clock way back to the invention of the internal combustion engine, at some point there were no gas stations. And and if if we were going to have an automobile industry, we had to, we had to deal with those infrastructure questions as well. We just kind of get used to uh, what we know and, and our current way of life. I'm curious. Uh, you mentioned before about when you go on a longer road trip and you, and you pull over and you maybe spend 15 minutes at a charger. Uh, are, are we set up now, you know, if, if if somebody stops to get gas on the side of the highway, and especially now with pay at the pump, uh, you're finished paying, uh, you're finished pumping gas, and it might take, you know, maybe even as little as five minutes, and then you've already paid so you can kind of pull up and park and go in to get a coffee, go in to use the restroom, uh, restroom and somebody else can uh, can take over use of that pump. Uh, are 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 charging stations at that point now, uh, uh, or are we are we anticipating longer lineups just to get to that charging station because everybody's taking that ten, fifteen, or twenty minutes?
1: Um, it, uh, anybody that's got an EV is waiting to hear this. Uh, the it, it depends whether at the moment whether you're driving a Tesla vehicle. Or a not not a Tesla vehicle, Tesla from day one invested very, very heavily and continues to invest in their charging network it 's a, a very extensive network, and if you're using sort of the main highways to get to places you know here to London, here to Ottawa, up north, there will be plenty of stations, plenty available and what you just explained to me, which is a Mar- mark mark i I, I, just...
0: I apologize mark i 've got to stop you there it 's been a great conversation I, I do appreciate it, and we will talk again some great information, thank you. Uh, But this is a a somewhat related topic. We're still talking about purchasing items, maybe of the smaller variety. We're curious about uh, the retail Christmas season. We know what it was like three or four years ago where we were in the throes of COVID-19. And in some cases, we were forbidden from going to busy shopping centres and stores. In other cases, even when some of the restrictions were relaxed, A lot of people were very reluctant. Some people were just outright scared. And of course, in some cases, even now, because of some of the new variants, there are some people that may still be a little bit reluctant to go to those really, really busy, busy places at this time of year or any time of year. But retail is a big industry. It employs a lot of people. There are a lot of small, independent retailers that really depend on the Christmas season for their livelihood. So we thought we'd try and get a temperature check. We're joined by Bruce Winder, who's a retail analyst. He's also the author of Retail Before during, and after COVID-19. Bruce, welcome to the program.
2: Thanks for having me on, Sid. Uh,
0: is it is it too early since, uh, I mean, there are a lot of people that are still going to be scrambling to do a lot of Christmas shopping here over the next three or four days. Uh, do we have a handle on what kind of a retail season it's been this December?
2: Yeah, it's a bit too early. I mean, we haven't got official Stats Canada information. We won't have that for quite a while. But sort of the word on the street is that October was pretty slow. Black Friday and Cyber Monday was okay, wasn't bad. Um, and then things kind of slowed down. And now um, it's probably going to get busy, um, the balance of this week, because um, we've got Super Saturday coming up. and we've also got retailers who are, there, who are already really flogging sort of the boxing week or pre-boxing week sales. But overall, it's probably going to be down low single digits.
0: Which is unfortunate, but uh, certainly understandable. Uh, We do have uh, a bit of an affordability issue in the country. Some of that has to do with mortgage rates and interest rates. So if people are struggling to renew their mortgages and paying hundreds of dollars more, if people are purchasing, we talked about vehicles of the purchasing and financing new vehicles, the interest rates, you know, where even three or four years ago, you might've got 0% interest and now you're paying 5, 6, 7% interest in some cases. Uh, you know something's got to give, and in some cases, it might be uh, Christmas shopping, or maybe not buying as many gifts, or if we are looking for something that is a little less expensive. Uh, and I do want to explore maybe uh, Christmas shopping uh, further, but but just overall in terms of the retail industry, uh, where are we in 2023? We had, uh, of course, a terrible goal uh, during COVID. Uh, you mentioned things don't seem to have fully bounced back yet, but but. How would you describe the retail industry in Canada at present?
2: Yeah, at present, we're kind of, we we finally hit a point where I think the consumer has put the brakes on spending a little bit. Um, even this time last year, I expected them to sort of touch the brakes a bit, but they didn't. They kept spending. And I think just all the things you just mentioned, you know, everything from household debt being high, um, you know, interest rates, mortgage renewal, rent, food Food is still a little sticky. Inflation for food still around five percent. You know, all, all inflation is uh, come around steady at three percent. So just a lot of headwinds right now, and I think it's finally come to roost sort of, you know, in the second half of 23, and it'll probably continue on until the government, uh, until the um, the Treasury starts to uh, lower interest rates potentially in the second half of 24.
0: Yeah, and that's certainly been the indication, I think, uh, in North America and other countries that we might be in for maybe a series of interest rate uh, declines over the next 12 months, although I read another story today that the banks may be a little bit reluctant to do that because uh, that could increase house prices, which is another part of the affordability crisis in this country. Right. So it, it is certainly tough economic times. And and how does online versus uh, versus going to actual big box stores small independent stores uh shopping centers are, have, have has online shopping plateaued or is it still growing uh every year
2: it's actually growing i mean it went it went through the roof during the pandemic for obvious reasons stores were closed people were nervous about getting sick And then once the pandemic subsided, call it this time last year, uh, online took a bit of a breather and people wanted to go out back into retail brick and mortar stores. But now we're at a point where online is coming back into stream. And, you know, Amazon announced their economic impact report today, and it's just so easy to buy online. They've got 60 different warehouses and facilities. They can ship 20 million products to Canadians under Prime and get it canadians in many cases within one to two days even places like a it takes three to five days to get it there so it's just become so easy now to buy online you know it's easier to buy online than it is to go into a store when you look at your time and everyone's time starved these days so that's why i think online shopping is is back to growing again
0: well that certainly is one of the big advancements and improvements for those who love to shop online is that is that turnaround time because if you know, you go back to when you know we first sort of got accustomed to looking online and shopping online. One of the impediments this time of year was, well, if I order it even in the middle of December, is there any chance that it's going to get here? But people I know are still ordering, uh, probably today, and it's going to arrive by Christmas.
2: It's true. I ordered something yesterday or the day before for Christmas for December twenty fifth, and it arrived uh, today. It arrived a day later, so. You know, that, that one week that, we're, you know, we, we were used to 20 years ago, it's been condensed now to one one to two days. And in some cases, even a few hours in some markets if you're really close to a warehouse. So, so, and the other thing that's really driving online, too, is the fact that people are looking for bargains, right? And it's a lot easier to look for bargains when you hunt online than it is walking from store to store to store. So, I think that's one of the other reasons, too, why you see online having a bit of a renaissance here.
0: Is Christmas... And the Christmas shopping season, still enough. And I know we talk in generalities, uh, if there are retailers listening, you know, you're not going to hear yourself in in everything. It varies from case to case to case, uh, we know. But in general terms, uh, it it used to be a given that uh, if you had a great November into December, that would kind of carry you through some of those slower months early in the new year. Is that still the case?
2: Well, certainly it can be, especially if you have a category like toys, you know, where call it 40% of your sales are in Q4, but it really depends, right? depends on what category you're in, but to your point speaking, generally, it has a big impact. You know, if you're selling anything that can be gifted or seasonal, it has a big impact. And uh, and that's where they originally got the whole, you know, Black Friday concept, right? As a retailer would be in the red losing money. And then by the end of Black Friday, they'd be in the black making money for the year. So it really is important.
0: And in terms of the expenses, there was a, a recent survey that found that the average holiday bill for Canadians, uh, the household bill, would be about $1,300. That seems high. Now, obviously, if we're talking averages, some would be well below that, but it also means some would be... Uh, well above, but that's a really expensive month. Uh, we we talked about the uh, financial circumstances that a lot of people are facing right now, but I think even in good economic times, that seems pretty expensive.
2: Yeah. And I think what they've done is they built in some travel in there too. You know, the folks who travel to see loved ones and things like that, because you're right, you know, that's a lot of money, right? Most afford to spend thirteen hundred dollars or thirteen fifty for the holidays. So I think they've they've sort of put in some folks who travel there as well as that expenditure. But yeah, people are people are trying to save as much money as they can this year, you know, whether they're thrifting or or buying private label or, you know, making gifts for people or just buying for less people, you name it. People are trying to pull all stops, pull out all the stops to try to save money.
0: One thing that and we're talking now about stats from last year from 2022, those are the most recent that are available. So we're just kind of looking at some of the trends in Christmas shopping. One thing that I found uh, both surprising and and really encouraging is that the largest percent of retail spending at Christmas was for things that uh encourage physical activity, outdoor and sports items. So and and we know organized sports can be extremely expensive and be a real burden on a lot of families that want to put their kids in a sport like hockey or, uh, well, hockey is probably the most expensive one, but uh, other sports are not inexpensive either. But when we're talking about things that, you know, you can, a kid can get a hockey stick and it encourages physical activity. They can play road hockey and go to the outdoor rink or a soccer ball. They can kick around in the summer, a badminton set. That was uh, that led the way in terms of expenditures. Uh, we paid in the neighborhood of $470 million dollars on outdoor and sports toys last year, which is a lot of money, but I think encouraging when we normally we bemoan the fact that, well, you know, kids these days, they don't go outside, they don't play, they're not getting the activity. All they do is stare at a screen, but but some parents at least are trying to encourage their kids to get active by what they're purchasing at Christmas, it seems.
2: Yeah, that is encouraging because you always think of, you know, toys morphing from when I was young into now video games, right, or screens. And, you know, and that's encouraging that there's people buying some recreation items. And you're right, you know, some of the the hobbies or the recreation items can get a little expensive if you're a novice skier or if you play hockey or, you know, with inflation over the last few years, too, everything's expensive. But, yeah, it's encouraging that we're trying to get uh, uh, children, I guess, outside and get some fresh air during this time.
0: And I'm just looking at the list from last year. So we talked about the outdoor and the sports toys, but games and puzzles uh, was the next most popular item to buy at Christmas time. And I'm not sure that that, that probably could include video games, uh, but I'm sure there's board games in there as well. Puzzles, puzzle seems to be, uh, I know a lot of adults that are kind of getting into puzzles now, and I never used to at least notice that, but it seems to be more popular than ever now.
2: Yeah, puzzles really had a resurgence in board games during the pandemic because people were bored, right? They had to stay stayed in the house. They didn't know what to do with themselves, so a lot of people took up puzzling and and playing family games and things. And I think some of that stuck, which is which is nice too for people to spend some time again away from a from a screen.
0: Right, and then that, some of the other things that were very popular last year: building sets, dolls, plush toys, action figures, and accessories. Action figures have been popular for decades. Uh, Oh, now we get to vehicles, so I don't think people are buying those for their kids. That's mom and dad that are buying themselves vehicles for Christmas. (laughs) Arts and crafts, there's another one that's good, uh, encourages some creativity. Oh, and there are youth electronics, so maybe that wasn't included. In uh, in the games and puzzles, or maybe we're talking more about the uh, about the the iPads and the uh, and the iPhones when we talk about youth electronics. And uh, apparently, Canadians spent about fifty million dollars on that uh, last Christmas. That actually seems a little low when you think about the amount spent on uh, on sports uh, items. But uh, that was the list from last year. And again, it'll be a while before we know uh, what happens in twenty twenty three. But generally, are there are there big shifts in uh, in spending? or or what we spend on from year to year in your experience or are the are the changes gradual
2: No, there are some big shifts i mean an example is this year and particularly this fall there's been an increase in essentials being bought for people versus discretionary items so you know getting the old socks and underwear for for christmas that's sort of an example of that just an essential item essentials are being bought more Discretionary items, in other words, things you don't really need but you want are being bought less. Some of the categories that have been a little soft recently have been consumer electronics, um, home furniture, again, which sort of took off during the pandemic, and even fashion to some degree. And that's why some people are looking at thrifting. You know, thrifting is really big in the fashion area now. There's no more stigma about buying used clothes. It's a badge of honor because you're saving the environment and you're saving uh, money as well.
0: And just one more before I let you go, we've got about a minute or so here. I didn't want to end without talking about the small independent retailer. We've talked about Amazon Mm -hmm. online shopping. We've talked about the big box stores and the shopping centers. Uh, There has over time seemed to be um, at least a desire to get back to supporting those local small independent businesses that, and maybe people even willing to pay or saying they're willing to pay a little bit more for great service. And just for knowing that they're, they're helping their neighbors who own these businesses, but, but how are those small independent businesses actually doing right now?
2: Yeah, we'll have to wait and see how they do. I mean, small businesses have had to adapt to, you know, we talked about e-commerce growing, Most small businesses now have their own e-commerce site, which was sort of a result of the pandemic. But a lot of small businesses are selling through other marketplaces. So we talked about Amazon earlier on. Amazon is actually a place where thousands of small businesses sell their products uh, every day, and especially during the holidays. So um, I think it's a little harder for small businesses right now, just because they don't have the same balance sheet as some of the big box stores, but they're getting creative. They're finding creative ways to survive whether it's through selling through a marketplace like Amazon or just, you know, trying to differentiate through customer service. But you're right. I think a lot of people realize that they realize that, you know what, they want to support local because those are the jobs in the neighborhood, right? That could be your neighbor who owns that store. So I think people where possible are definitely trying to support local.
0: Right. And I think that if there's any sector of the retail industry that people openly cheer for, it is that small Independent operator, and we know uh, how difficult it is to to be in that position these days. Uh, Bruce, thanks for your time. We do appreciate it. Merry Christmas!
2: Yeah, you too. Sid, take care. Have a great holiday.
0: Uh, the topic came up about how to get the word out, and there were Christmas organizations that were finding it hard to meet their goals this year, and a couple of them, you know, it's it's sort of a trend that they've noticed over the last little bit. And somebody kind of linked it back to uh, this contraction that we've seen in the news industry. And when we think of uh, journalism, we often think of big cities, we think of major markets, we think of national networks and publications, and those certainly are critically important. Uh, But so too is the the local daily or the weekly newspaper, the independent radio station in smaller towns and cities across the country. And we're seeing contraction there too. And these are outlets that... Uh, they cover your, your town council, they cover your school boards, uh, they cover the crime beat, uh, but they also get the word out on community events, on charitable events. So it's when, when these outlets close, there are a lot of ramifications. There is a huge ripple effect. And so we had that conversation earlier in the week, and then today on globalnews.ca, uh, the headline is, Flurry of Newspaper Closures Raise Concern About the Future of Local News. So this was yet another uh, difficult year in the news business, and particularly for some of those smaller community-minded outlets. And to talk about it, we're joined by April Lindgren. April is with the Local News Research Products, uh, Project excuse me, at Toronto Metropolitan University School of Journalism. April, welcome to the program.
3: Hi, Sid. Thanks for uh, inviting me on.
0: Yeah, we do appreciate you uh, spending some time with us tonight. This is an issue that I think most people are, are aware of. This, you know, The upheaval in the news industry and in the broadcast industry has been uh, an item for several years now. And I think there are a lot of people, particularly that might be listening to this network, that think of it in terms of some of the larger markets or the larger cities that they may live in. Uh, this signal and others certainly uh, travel into rural areas, and then we get into smaller communities that... Uh, maybe once had daily newspapers and went to weekly and maybe now don't have a local newspaper at all. Maybe they don't have any local media at all. Uh, how big a concern should this be?
3: I, I think it's a huge concern. Uh, you know, we've become over the years started to better understand the role that uh, local media in particular plays in communities. You know, in the past we used to focus research and thinking about national media but um as as the as it's become more and more difficult for for smaller local media organizations to survive whether they're uh new, local newspapers or radio stations tv stations or uh online online news sites um we're starting to think about what, why do we care what happens with these these news outlets and and the first reason is obviously they hold power accountable they keep an eye on the politicians and and what they're up to But they also give people the the information they need to get involved in decisions that are made by mayors and councils and electrical utilities and boards of education before the decisions are made. So you don't have to find out, you know, they decided tonight. You find out when an issue gets to the committee level and you can go and have some input into it. But if nobody's telling you how these sorts of decisions are winding their way through the corridors of power, it's kind of difficult to have a say. And then of course we need good news or good reliable news because uh in its absence rumor and innuendo and, and misinformation just uh uh surges to, to fill in the fill in the fill in the void.
0: Yeah, I was looking at one uh survey today of Canadians and, and apparently the statistics are not much different in a lot of other uh, countries around the world. I think it was something in the neighborhood of sixty percent of Canadians are are finding it more difficult to differentiate between what is true and what is untrue, and when they're looking at, at at you know quote unquote news online, uh, where you don't have editors and you don't have that vetting process that these these outlets that are struggling and some have disappeared what what they have traditionally had. Uh, do we have uh, figures for how many outlets may have? Uh, just simply disappeared over the last year or so
3: sure in the in the last year there's a, we track um, what's changed we track what's launched in terms of local news outlets and what's uh what's closed um, across the country on on a project i run called the local news map and in this last year we've seen 36 uh news organizations that have that have shuttered um and and 29 of them are, are, are community newspapers and seven seven of them are local radio stations, uh, and this is uh, up compared to uh, the last couple of years because during the pandemic there were a lot of COVID subsidies that went to all sorts of businesses, including the news business, and that sort of staved off uh, the the pattern of closures that we've been seeing happening, uh, you know, in the last five to 10 years. Um, so there was a bit of a lull during the pandemic, and now it seems that this uh, this 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 pattern of closures has 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 well is making a comeback. Sadly, for everyone.
0: And the number thirty six may not seem like a lot when you look at the size of Canada and the population of Canada, but that means, you know, if there are twenty nine community community newspapers that disappeared, those are actual communities where people can no longer, uh, you know effectively and easily find out what's going on in their own communities and seven radio stations where they used to broadcast news and maybe local sporting events and, and publicized charitable events and, and, and everything that goes along with that.
3: Sure. And you need to think about it in the longer term context, too. So we've been tracking uh, what's been happening at, at at the local news level um, across the country since uh, 2008 and more than 500 local news outlets have closed uh, since then in the last 15 years in in 345 places. Um, now that wouldn't be so bad if you know there were all sorts of uh, new operations and new new online digital sites and newspapers and radio stations and TV stations launching. But in fact, only about just over 200 have launched. So they're they're disappearing at the rate twice the rate of uh, of which new. Um, new new businesses new news businesses are are appearing on the landscape
0: and there are of course uh some digital news outlets that have uh come to light over the last few years some of them do a great job there are a lot of them are are small though and a lot of them might be a one or two person operation and then it just becomes very difficult to cover as much and and sometimes maybe to cover things as in depth as the outlets that disappeared may have been able to do at one point
3: Sure. I mean, you know, when I started at uh, the newspaper I worked at, at the Ottawa Citizen back in 1990, there were 190 journalists or people in the newsroom. And, you know, today there's barely two dozen. So that even that sort of major news outlets, the, the number of journalists have disappeared. Um, and then, you know, we're seeing, yes, some of these digital news startups are are, are small for sure, but uh, some of them are are also managing to grow. You know, they're finding alternative and varied sources of revenue, um, and 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 they're making a difference. I mean, I, I suppose if I'm trying to be optimistic, I can look around at at, at uh, some of the reporting that's been done over the past year that has made a huge difference. You know, in Ontario, we've had a, a big controversy about the premier. And the conservative government uh, trying to open up development on protected um, green space um, around uh, the Greater Toronto Area, mm-hmm. and um, when the auditor general started, uh, the provincial auditor looked into it. She actually mentioned journalists, news coverage as caring as as pushing forward the the challenges to these decisions. Uh, that decision that was ultimately reversed. So there, I mean, I think you have to keep in mind there still is journalism being done that that really matters by large news organizations, but also by uh, in some in the case of, of this reporting, by also by small news organizations.
0: Yeah, there's certainly there, there's no doubt that there is some great work in being done out there, and, and people that really take it seriously and really pride themselves on doing things the right way and reporting news the way it, it is meant to be reported. Is the onus on us as the as the consuming public then to become At times, our own aggregators of news, where if we were in a community that had a daily newspaper or even a weekly newspaper, had a local, small, independent radio station, uh, we used to rely on them and maybe, uh, you know, to decide what was important and what we were getting. And now, with the fragmentation, we kind of have to go and, and, and seek out multiple sources to find out about everything that's going on.
3: Yeah, and that assumes that you can distinguish between sources that are reliable and others that aren't. So in in lots of cases, uh, well, in many cases, what's happening is municipal governments, for instance, are hiring more communications people. They're putting out more information on their websites. Uh, You know, that's what the the cities and towns are doing themselves. But you have to ask as 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 a resident in that community, how do you know it's true? I mean, it might be kind of true, but it might also be sort of not necessarily the full story because... You know, you have politicians and decision makers giving their version of, uh, of of what they want the public to know and what they think is is the rationale for decisions. And there may be a whole bunch of other perspectives out there that 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 you have no way as a citizen of finding out because you know you're busy raising your kids or, and going to work and and you don't have you don't spend all day like a journalist does uh, chasing down information and then putting it out and sharing it with other people.
0: Yes, yeah, so and one example given by one of the charities earlier in the week was. Uh, with the, the inability or, or it's so much harder now uh, to rely on traditional media to get the word out for even charitable events over the Christmas season that they now have to go online and try and create their own communities and tell their own stories and just hope that there's some sort of an organic growth there so that the, the message they're, tr- they're trying to get out there will actually be received by the community where they didn't have to worry about that uh, 5, 10 or 15 years ago.
3: Yeah, and you know, there's another aspect of that as well, which is the role of local news in doing service, performing services like that um, as as a community builder. Um, and and by that I mean, you know, maybe I didn't go to the local charitable event to uh, to to, to uh, the local charity silent auction um but my um uh, but i could read about it in the in the newspaper how much money they raised and and what the event was about and so could my neighbor and then we can talk about that it gives us it creates a bond between us because we have some shared information um but in the absence of you know me looking uh, reading trying to find st- information out from one source and my neighbor maybe not bothering to look at all because it's so time consuming or 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 looking at another source that doesn't give them that information, it puts strains on those sorts of common bonds that that we have, and the things that we have to talk about, and the people that we can, and I in quotation marks, meet through our local the local news coverage. We we just uh, it reduces the opportunities to build those sorts of shared um, uh, bits of information and and uh, and experiences uh, that we can vicariously experience through news.
0: I agree. I think done properly. And I think a lot over the years have, I, you know, I think that local, uh, that local outlet becomes a real, a real part of the fabric of any community. I mean, I can, I can talk from experience having worked in, in small market uh, radio where there might be over the course of a year, dozens of charitable organizations or people looking to do good for the community that would come to a radio station and ask for help. And I quite literally cannot ever remember the answer ever not a single time being no the answer was always yes we'll we'll do what we can to help and that's just one less resource that those community members have now
3: yeah you know like i think it's important not to idealize how well i mean it, as with everything else in it, in the past there's been really strong good journalism done at the local level that is really committed to serving the public interest and then there's you know some shabby work and just lazy work as well um but but you know so we shouldn't completely idealize it there's there's lots of things that we've done wrong uh in journalism in the past but but I mean I think people don't i, I think this is one of these situations just you don't know what what you got till it's gone um to quote a, <laughs> a better lyricist than me um and uh, yeah, so I think that's that's kind of what we're looking at here, and it's um, and it, it's it's really I think it's really problematic.
0: And, and a recent Reuters Institute survey found that overall trust in news by Canadians is at forty percent. We've known that trust in in news organizations has been declining over the years, and I'm sure there's more than one reason. But but why do you think it's happening?
3: Well, I I mean I think. Partly, it has to do with the news industry's uh, way of dealing with economic challenges. So, you know, um, we saw the first, the first sort of wave of change that that eroded revenues available. That the revenues that we used to use to pay for collecting news um, was the, uh, the the arrival of Craigslist and and and, and online uh, sites like that. That. Basically, eradicated classified classified ad revenue from newspapers, so that you know that that source of revenue disappeared, and then you know the internet became as it as it advanced. Um, we saw the um, um, the onslaught of uh, online uh, news display online news advertising or sorry online advertisements, um, and those replaced lucrative display ads. Um, in 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 newspapers and to a certain extent, um, uh, posed a challenge to you know advertising by in other media as in other mediums as well. Um, so that that was another source of, uh, of, of of revenue that disappeared. And then of course, it became harder and harder to um, attract audiences, whether regardless of whether you were uh, dinner time uh, TV or. Or or radio stations or or, or newspapers, because people could get their news anytime, twenty four seven, off the internet. So there were no more sort of appointment television or the paper you having to wait till the paper landed on your front porch the next day, or the you know the eight a.m. news on the radio. I could just you know roll over, pick up my phone, and click on it and find out what the latest news is. So that, that um, you know, to the extent that uh, news organizations re- re- uh, re- re- uh, relied on subscriptions and that sort of thing, that is another erosion of revenue. So really, we ended up with this revenue issue, and, and news organizations have responded by basically uh, cutting back the product that they provide, which is the news. So what you're seeing is people thinking, well, this news organization doesn't have a clue about what's going on in my community because they hardly have any coverage, or they've got their, their staff is so stressed and so run off their feet, they only tell half the story. Um, and, you know, you you set that against a backdrop of greater political polarization, and, and that's why you end up with, uh, you know, people saying, well, it's, you know, it's so what if the local newspaper closes? It, it was a rag and there was nothing in, left in it anyway. Um, and, and you couldn't believe anything that was there because, you know, half the time they got it wrong. Because they you know didn't have the money or the time or the resources to hire perhaps qualified people or they just didn't have any staff at all, so I think in a sense've uh, um, we've, we've shot ourselves in the foot um, by responding to these revenue challenges um, by by cutting back as opposed to finding new revenue sources. Now I, I say that, but the truth of the matter, it't hasn't been at all easy to find new revenue sources.
0: Right, and and I always wonder, and it's you know it's 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 complete hindsight, but I, I sometimes look back and wonder if there was an arrogance in the industry thinking that. Uh, you know, we can just keep doing things the way we always have and we'll be fine. Or if any legacy industry would uh, would struggle to adapt that quickly to, you know, just that rapid onset of the internet uh, followed quickly uh, thereafter by social media. We only have uh, about a minute or so left here and, and we appreciate your time tonight. I, I am curious. So do you think there's anybody out there uh, that's doing it right, uh, that has adapted and, and is thriving now?
3: Yeah, there are some there are some digital news sites and online sites that I think are finding a formula that works. And one of the things they've done is they said no to advertising and they're raising money um from basically re- re- uh reader support or or yeah, reader support whether they're digital uh, mostly digital plays in these cases and um and philanthropic support to a certain extent, but they've really made a point of engaging with their audiences so that they are really as seen as part of the community, and um, so people aren't, don't buy advertising there. They but they make a donation, and or they pay for a sort of uh, an annual fee to be a member and participate in events that maybe the news organization does, and and really care and, and pay attention and have some input perhaps into the stories that they think they should be writing about.
0: Well, it's interesting, and maybe by this time next year, uh, it'll be a rosier picture, but uh, there's a lot of people out there that would say don't bet on it. Uh, April, yeah. thanks for your time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I hope it's it. better
3: too. <laughs>
0: thanks yeah, a lot. I, think, talking to I you. think a lot of people do. During the holidays, loved ones are
2: in our hearts, no matter where they are.
0: Well, yesterday we talked to former NHLer Rob Brown about spending 16 consecutive Christmases away from home. Of course, uh, you know, we, we always say spending Christmas at home is certainly aspirational for most of us. We want to be with our loved ones. And there's something about home. There's something about that that location. For some of us, it's about weather. It's about snow. It's about the cold. Because if it's what we grew up with, it's what we just want to continue those traditions and, and those feelings, and, and build on those memories. Rob spent 16 consecutive uh, Christmases away from home. The first one was in Russia uh, when he played for Team Canada at the World Junior Hockey Championship. Well, our next guest won't be spending it in a place that is, is quite as cold as Russia might be over Christmas. Uh, it's Kirsty Feely, who is a Canadian who has moved to Australia. Kirsty, welcome to the program.
4: Hey, Sid, how are you?
0: I'm wonderful. Thank you for joining us. What time of day is it where you are?
4: Yeah, absolutely. It's um it's about three PM right now, Sydney time.
0: Okay, and what is the weather there?
4: To be honest with you, I wish I could say that the sun was splitting the rocks, but it's actually been raining all day today and it's meant <laughs> be raining all week. <laughs> so we're well, not in good luck for, for a sunny Christmas right now. Well, but we'll, we we'll keep all our f- fingers crossed.
0: We all feel very sorry for you that you're having to put up with rain. Although, actually, you probably know keeping in touch with people back home, it hasn't been the coldest of uh, Decembers as of yet. We don't know what we're in for in the next few weeks, but it's been relatively mild so far. So tell me, when did you move to Australia and why?
4: Yeah, so I actually moved here in the middle of April. So we're about eight months or so deep right now. And I actually moved out here because I just had so many other Canadian friends that were kind of doing the same thing. I saw a couple of them come out here a year prior, and it looked like they had the best time ever. Um, So, yeah, it was a very simple process. They make it super easy for Canadians to come over here and live here, even just for the year's time. Um, So I thought, you know, I'm still young. I'm not committed to anything. I might as well try it out and see how it goes. So that's what we're
0: doing. Is that your plan, to be there for a year?
4: Um, I mean, I'm 50-50. Don't tell my mom. But I told her <laughs> that I was only going for a year. And I don't know. I have That's a good plan.
0: for That's a flight. good plan. Tell mom you're not going to be gone long. That's a good plan.
4: Yeah, exactly. But we'll see what happens. I'm open to staying, that's for sure.
0: <laughs> and and so what are some of the requirements if you're going to go live in Australia uh, permanently, or, or maybe in this case, semi-permanently?
4: I mean, it's super. It's different for everybody, really. They make it super easy to get different visas depending on your age and your skills and what you're sort of after. For me, though, I'm 26 right now, and I'm on a working holiday visa. Um, and I think you can do that up until you're around age 30. And, um, yeah, you don't really need to do anything. I think it's about $500 to apply for the visa, and then you can live and work here for a year.
0: Is, is there a requirement that you work, or are you are just able to work?
4: No, you're just able to. So it's, it's amazing for people who work remote as well, for Canadian
0: companies,
4: um, they can if they're able to work completely remote, then they can do the same thing over here, really. You're not forced to work at all.
0: And um, in terms of affordability, we know that uh, Canada is, uh, things are pricey here right now and have been for a while. and yeah. There's some hope that that might ease a little bit over the course of the next year or so, but Uh, Australia has never struck me as an inexpensive place to be. What's, what's it like there? What have you found?
4: It's well, I mean, I, I definitely chose the most expensive place to live, the iconic (laughs) Bondi beach. So, um, for me, it hasn't been, you know, the cheapest of all. Um, I would say though, that I feel like I end up spending the same amount of money dollar for dollar wise that I would back home. Um, however, they pay a lot better here. So, for example, the minimum wage at home, I think, is around $15 or so. Um, and out here, they're paying minimum 30 30 is, like, not, not even a good wage at all. Um, so I find if you're kind of spending the same amount of money, you're able to make a bit more here. So it kind of cancels it out. I feel like there's a bit better um, opportunity to get ahead in terms, in terms of that, for sure.
0: It would certainly seem so. If the minimum wage is $30 and, and everything else is, is yeah. comparable, then yeah, you, it seems like you would be ahead of the game. Um, sure. In terms of other, what what else is different about living in Australia, uh, you know, the way it's depicted? Yeah. and uh, It seems like there would be a lot of similarities, mm-hmm. but has anything taken a while to adjust to?
4: Totally. I mean, it is so similar, especially for being as far away from Canada that it is like as far as you can possibly get. It's so similar. Um, I would just say the lifestyle, the weather, it really is not to be underestimated. I feel like if you're living in a climate where it's warm year round, everyone is a lot more active. Everyone spends a lot more time outside. Everyone has a lot more hobbies. Um, and I think it really also plays a big role in everyone's mood and happiness, to be honest with you. I know the, you know, six months out of the year in, in our cooler months can really be a downer for most people. So having that not, you know, happening every year to you, I feel like is a morale boost overall for sure. Um, so I think that's one of the one of the benefits for sure. As far as other differences, though, I feel like it's really quite the same. It's just warmer and easier to do things, and everyone might be a little bit happier, dare I say.
0: <laughs> I'm curious about your feelings. This is a choice that you made to go live in Australia. Before the break. It sounded like you're just having the time of your life. Does Christmas coming up in a few days uh, change that at all?
4: Totally. It's, it's actually super hard this year for me because I'm so close with my family back at home and we always do everything together. So having my first Christmas away from home is not going to be easy. Um, but, I mean, I still talk to them all the time and hopefully we'll get in some FaceTime on Christmas Day as well.
0: So what was a typical Christmas for you like uh, in Canada?
4: I mean, back home, it was the very classic Canadian Christmas. Lots of snow, holidays, getting off school. Um, Me and my mom always put up the Christmas tree together and decorate the house. Um, My sister and my dad are always kind of running around. They're always the busiest, but it's usually me and my mom who are doing all the holiday stuff in the house. Um, So I think she's really sad about that this year. And then, of course, some family dinners on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day um so yeah it'll it'll be a a weird one this year not having being part of any of that really
0: is mom going to be sadder than you do you think on christmas
4: (laughs) i think she probably will it's been a little bit easier for me just because i'm not seeing so much of the christmas hustle bustle right in my face i feel like the australians are a little bit chiller about it um it's more it feels like a bit more of a culture at home so being the person who's out of the house, out of the usual places where we celebrate Christmas, I feel like it's, yeah, just not rubbed in my face as much. So it's, I think it's a bit harder for them right now.
0: And wait till mom finds out that it may be the same next year. Oh, no, we're not talking about that. <laughs>
4: <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> uh, okay, so so
0: so tell me about Australia. And Australia, you just say they're a little bit more chill when it comes to Christmas, not the hustle and bustle? Like, is it is it decorated? Is there, you're hearing Christmas music everywhere you go?
4: I mean, there are a few decorations thrown up here and there, but I'd say it's at, like, maybe 30% of the culture that we have at home. Same with the Christmas carols. I don't think I've heard one Christmas carol anywhere No Santa hats, no, you know, none of that really. It's very kind of like almost the way that we would decorate our, you know, malls and just everything around like Easter time or something. Like you might see some Easter eggs out, but Mm -hmm. it's not a whole, you're not living in a village of it all. So that also makes it a little bit easier because I just feel like I'm not even processing the fact that it's Christmas time right now.
0: Maybe it won't hit you till you wake up on Christmas morning, and 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 for you, what 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 do you think that's going like? You say you have uh, some friends that have been there. Have you made new friends? Are or, or are you spending it completely alone? Or are you spending it with a group of, uh, of friends or colleagues? No. Or?
4: Yeah, no, I have a ton of friends out here. It's been super easy to make some friends. I have a lot of Canadian ones as well, um, as well as some you know Australians and tons of British friends as well out here. So there's a lot of us that are kind of on our own this year. Um, And most of the Australians just go to the beach anyway on Christmas Day. So it's almost like how we used to celebrate Canada Day is how they celebrate their Christmas from what I am hearing and expecting. So I think all my friends, everybody in Bondi is going to be at the beach for the day. Um, But again, with the weather, since it's been raining so much right now, and I think it's still meant to on Christmas Day, it's looking a little bit tight. So it might just turn into a bottomless brunch, which is another popular thing around here.
0: Sorry? Oh, a bottomless brunch. Yep. <laughs> okay. Uh, hearing you describe Australians spending Christmas at the beach, I'm not sure if I'm envious or if it sounds kind of soul-destroying. I, 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 I'm i sure I could get used to it. I'm sure if I was there, I would enjoy the warmth and I would I- enjoy the water. But there's something about cold and snow and home that... Uh, All these years later, I still haven't been able to to get myself to go somewhere warm for Christmas, but you're going to experience here for the first time.
4: Totally. No, I'm so on the same page as you with that, and I think that's why I'm not even, like, associating this with Christmas, because it's just so far from what I know it to be. So I'm kind of just accepting it as just a fun beach day out, and I might just have to have a, a proper Christmas when I get back home. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah, that might be, that might be an order. Uh, Kirsty. thanks very much for your time. Uh, by the way, uh, people can follow you if they want to, want to follow you on your adventures in Australia. How, the, how can they do that?
4: Yeah, totally. Instagram or TikTok is the same. It's just at Kirstie Feely, K-I-R-S-T-Y-F-E-E-L-Y.
0: Kirsty, thanks very much. And as much as you can, enjoy your time in Australia, even on Christmas. We know you're missing home. We know you're missing your family. Uh, but it sounds like you've got things figured out pretty well there. Thanks for your time tonight.
4: Yeah, thanks so much. See you later, Sid.
0: We're going to talk about Donald Trump. Uh, the Colorado Supreme Court has disqualified Trump. Remember, this broke uh, late yesterday as we were getting on air. From that state's presidential primary ballot. The reason, the court says Trump violated a section of the Constitution that bars any officer of the United States from holding office if they've engaged in insurrection or rebellion. The implication being that Trump did exactly that through his words and actions on January 6th, 2021. Trump's reaction, predictable. It's no wonder crooked Joe Biden and the far left lunatics are desperate to stop us by any means
2: necessary. They are willing to violate the U.S. constitutions at levels never seen before in order to win this election. Joe Biden is a threat to democracy. It's a threat. They're weaponizing law enforcement for high level election interference because we're beating them so badly in the polls.
0: Joe Biden and the far left lunatic sounds like a sounds like a a new age rock band of some sort uh, but we wanted to talk about this. It is uh, quite serious and I know that although uh, there are a lot of people that follow politics in the United States that were aware that this was being challenged, but I don't know that everybody expected that it would fall this way just just the notion I think more than anything we're not constitutional experts, but just the notion uh, that someone who once held The position of most powerful man in the world, four years later, might be ruled ineligible to run for another term. To help us wade through this, we're joined by Doug Spencer, Associate Dean, Professor of Law at the University of Colorado Boulder. Doug, welcome to the program. We appreciate it. Thanks,
5: Sid. Good to hear from you.
0: I'm curious if you were surprised by this or or if you expected this is the way it would play out in Colorado.
5: This is a not terribly surprising decision in Colorado, given our state law. This was a question about whether our Secretary of State, who's the state official who prints the ballots and determines eligibility. Uh, our state law allows people to file lawsuits and gives her a lot of discretion in deciding whether or not somebody is eligible. Different states have different rules. But the way the law is set up here, which is one of the reasons I think the lawsuit was brought here, um, led to this outcome that's not terribly surprising.
0: And so what is the what is the letter of the law? How, how is it worded that would, uh, that would lend itself to this verdict? Although it wasn't unanimous, was it?
5: It was not unanimous. We have seven uh, state Supreme Court justices, and the decision was decided four to three. So it was a very close decision. Um, but the Supreme Court held, one, that the Secretary of State does have some role to play in determining the eligibility of people who run for office in our state, whether that's a, they're a state or a federal official. Uh, And then they also interpreted the U.S. Constitution uh, exactly as you were describing. And they found that Donald Trump engaged in insurrection. He had previously taken an oath to defend the Constitution. And under the third section of our 14th Amendment, he's unable or disqualified from holding the office of president going forward, according to their interpretation.
0: Now, there wasn't a trial on this at the state level, correct?
5: Uh, there actually was a trial, a five-day trial several weeks ago, where President Trump was uh, cross-examining witnesses, introducing evidence, where there, the trial judge made a determination that Trump engaged in insurrection, defined what happened on January 6, 2021, as an insurrection, pieced through this and all of the factual components that would go into it, and held, indeed, that he uh, had engaged in insurrection, and that was affirmed by the state Supreme Court.
0: Uh, and when we'll get into maybe some of the public opinion that derives from this. There doesn't seem anything uh, on the Republican side that kind of can stop the momentum that Trump seems to have. I know, uh, I'm not sure what he feels like in his heart. I'm not sure what he says behind closed doors, but publicly he certainly seems to celebrate any time any sort of a ruling goes against him. So the next step, has it already been bumped up to the U.S. Supreme Court or is it just... I uh, felt that it's a given that it is and and if it is do you think they'll hear it?
5: I do think they'll hear it. The Colorado Supreme Court stayed or put their, you know, paused their own opinion until January 4th. The ballots need to be printed here on January 5th. But they also stated in their opinion that if an appeal is filed, then that hold will continue throughout the case. So it's very likely Donald Trump's name will actually appear on the primary ballot because this holding by the state Supreme Court uh, will be stayed. The, a spokesperson for the Trump campaign did immediately say, we will file an appeal. They haven't yet. They signaled they will. But I think this really speaks to the underlying dynamic of the case. It's, it's not the case that Trump was likely to win the electoral votes of Colorado, and so that's not why this, why this lawsuit was filed here. The state Supreme Court of Colorado does not intend to derail Donald Trump from becoming the president. But what they are trying to do is provide some clarity on an open question in the Constitution. And so by holding this case this way on the merits, it forces an appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, which is ultimately the body that should decide this, but has stayed out of it. And now they're going to be pulled into it. And it's almost irrelevant whether Donald Trump's name's on the ballot or not, because it's the legal issue that everybody's trying to get at. And it's worth noting that even had Donald Trump's name not been printed on the ballot, His supporters could, of course, written his name in. The Republican Party could have changed its rules to give Donald Trump delegates at their convention. Um, So he still had a path forward, even if this case were to remove his name printed from our ballot.
0: Right. So there's a path forward in terms of the primary. Are there there implications for the general election? So if uh, even if he is not on the ballot, and uh, but he becomes the nominee for the Republican Party, uh, does this ruling, if it's upheld, keep him off the ballot in the general election?
5: That Yes, it should. But that's been the question all along. So there have been 26 lawsuits, actually, in the United States trying to prevent Trump from being listed on ballots in 26 different states. All, most of the other states have dismissed cases. Some of the litigation is pending. And uh, the question that some of those other courts have said is, you filed your lawsuit too soon. That a primary election is really something that's run by a political party, not by a state government. So come back to us when we get to the general election. But either way, the logic of whether or not Trump engaged in insurrection will be the same. And in Colorado, in any case, our courts have decided that for for our state purposes, enlisting people on the ballot, he's not eligible to run.
0: I'm I'm curious, though, Doug, about... The the clause of the Constitution that was used to make this ruling. When did that come in? Why and has it been used before in this manner?
5: So it's an old clause. It was ratified in 1868 in the wake of America's Civil War, and it, it's a big. The Fourteenth Amendment has a lot of moving pieces, but one of the sections says that if you took an oath to, to support and defend the Constitution of the United States of America, and then you engage in insurrection, you're unable to hold office. The fear in the wake of the civil war was that people who seceded and fought against the union in our civil war, and then our country was reconstructed together might try to run for office and then sabotage our government from the inside. And so in, in case in our constitution embedded in that right to run for office now, disqualified um, anybody who had participated in that rebellion. And it was used to disqualify many people in those early years. There is a provision of that, um, that language that says Congress could pass a law, if two thirds vote of our Congress passes a law, then that would cure the or remove the disability and it would allow somebody to do that. And so for some of those rebels, Congress actually did uh, immunize them against this. And there was a big debate about this in the 1870s and 1880s. Otherwise it's, it's been dormant for a while, but it has reared its head because of January 6th, it's been used to disqualify an officer of the state Legislature in the state of New Mexico disqualified from running for office because he was actually at the Capitol and broke in. It's been raised against other members of Congress, but this is the first time that a state Supreme Court has ruled and enforced it, interpreted it in a way that would disqualify the president, uh, former President Trump from running for office again.
0: Yeah, and certainly there's no nobody that served any higher office when it comes to somebody that might uh, fall under this clause and, and might be prevented from running again. I'm curious, uh, in these cases, is uh, like for example with the case uh, with Donald Trump, and he's defending himself in the state of Colorado. Is the argument from the Trump camp that uh, he wasn't involved, or that this doesn't rise to the level of insurrection?
5: There's a couple of different arguments that the Trump campaign's making. One is they're saying, well, I didn't participate in an insurrection. I gave a speech and then I went home. But more what the argument has centered on is the process. They've made a claim that they haven't been given a criminal trial. They've, uh, you know, Trump has never been convicted as criminally uh, engaging in insurrection Even though there was a hearing in Congress that investigated this, even though there was an impeachment inquiry that looked into this, even though there was a trial in this case that looked at it, their camp has been arguing that he's been denied due process because he hasn't been given a formal trial specifically on these charges. And that's what they've been pushing. The Colorado Supreme Court, of course, said, we gave you plenty of chances to produce evidence. And also there's a question uh, whether the due process clause of our Constitution Would even apply, because our government is required to provide due process if it's going to take away your life, liberty, or property. But none of those are at stake here. We're taking away someone's ability to run for office, which is a privilege, but not the same kind of fundamental right. And so all of that was at play in this case, and the Supreme Court ruled against them, as you know, uh, didn't buy that argument.
0: And I, I know that the higher court may ultimately decide this, but but do you do you find any validity into Trump's argument here? Um, I do. I think I I think the
5: Colorado Supreme Court has come to a very defensible position, but I do think it's one of these areas where reasonable minds could disagree. I think if you got all the prominent constitutional and election lawyers in a room and asked them, uh, what what do you think the proper process is for enforcing this provision of the Constitution about insurrectionists? There wouldn't be a unanimous decision I think would be split, maybe four to three, like we saw with this court. And so because it's an open question, I think all of these arguments have validity, and it's one of the reasons that we've been clamoring for the U.S. Supreme Court to give us some clarity. Ultimately, they get final say on interpreting the federal constitution, and once they tell us what the federal constitution means in this context, then there will be a consensus. We'll accept what they have to say, but so far, I think all of the sides that are putting forward arguments are reasonable, and it's just a matter of convincing a judge and then working its way to the U.S. Supreme Court.
0: I'm somewhat reluctant to talk about politics as it relates to courts, but if you'll allow, I am curious as to the makeup of the Colorado uh, Supreme Court. It broke 4-3. Is there any indication that it breaks along, you know, liberal versus conservative? Or, or how does that, uh, how do, what's the makeup of that court?
5: Yeah, so there's been much made, certainly from the Trump campaign, pointing out that all seven of the justices on our Supreme Court have been appointed by Democratic governors. But it's also the case that in Colorado, a governor appoints you and then you face an election um, from the entire state body politic two years after your appointment. And six of our seven justices have stood for election and won election, you know, with 65 to 75 percent support. Um, The state of Colorado is leaning in a Democratic direction. Our governor is a Democrat. Um, Used to be a solidly Republican state, but it's shifted. But I'll also note that our democratic politics are a little bit different than what you might be used to in that we have a very strong gun culture and hunting culture. There's a strong libertarian bent in the state about keeping the government away from our lives, not inserting themselves in health care and those kinds of traditional democratic positions. So I think the fact that the court split four to three speaks to the political culture of our state, which is... A little bit unique, and maybe we would call it purple, um, but it is true that you know if you just look at the raw politics, all of these justices were appointed by a Democratic governor, which makes it an easy fodder to claim that that must be the reason they came to this conclusion.
0: Yeah, it certainly makes it easy to pontificate like that in public. But then the, the other side of that argument is if they were all appointed by Democrats, but three voted, you know, quote unquote, in favor of Trump, then that kind of uh, softens that message just a little bit. Uh, are you one to kind of uh, wade into predictions on what may happen when we get to the Supreme Court of the United States on this? Uh, and, and, and that, uh, at least publicly and in the public debate, seems to be uh, seen as a highly politicized court recently. Uh, what do you think might happen there?
5: Yeah, it is very highly politicized. And some of the moves that that court has made recently have made prognosticating a much more challenging exercise. I will say that the court does have six Republican appointed justices who who are fairly conservative and three more liberal justices. But the conservative justices are what you might call traditionally conservative and not really Trumpy. And so I don't view this as Trump put some people on the court when he was president and now they're going to return the favor by helping him. Um, That's not been the case in, in these other cases where issues related to him have come before the court. So I do think that there will be a good faith attempt at interpreting this. I do think that the most conservative approach in the United States right now is originalism and trying to figure out what the language meant at the time of its ratification. And in 1868, behavior exactly like what happened on January 6th, was certainly intended to be covered. And so I think the more that you look at that conservative argument, the more likely you could find votes. And the only hesitation is that the Supreme Court is as much political as it is legal, and they'll try to evaluate whether disqualifying Trump from the ballot would lead to unrest and civil um, violence perhaps, and maybe find a way to skirt the issue because of that. But the legal issues do seem pretty clear um, and I do imagine there will be votes from Republican appointed justices to disqualify him. Whether we can get right. to five of those is a different question.
0: And that is certainly one of the, the lingering issues out there. And it, it kind of hovers over this. And even with the with the, the ruling at, at the state level in Colorado, there were uh, people out there and, and they may be on the extreme, but there were people out there already talking about, if this stands up, there's going to be violence and all the rest of it. And is that something that is, that that the Supreme court should take into consideration or should they just, you know, rule on the letter of the con- constitution and, and not take those potential ramifications into consideration?
5: That is just an incredible question, Sid. And I wish you could come and give us a lecture. Uh, there's no, <laughs> you don't want me giving about... you a lecture on the law. <laughs> Uh, You may be able to teach us quite a few things. I will say that there has been um, some signals that they do take that into account in prior cases. There was a case actually from Colorado about 10 years ago from somebody who was supposed to go and vote for Hillary Clinton because that's who won the Colorado election as one of our electors and was a faithless elector, cast a rogue vote and was removed and then challenged our law that said they couldn't vote their conscience. And the U.S. Supreme Court, one of the arguments that they made was if we allow members of the Electoral College to just vote however they want, even if the state election went a different way, it would create such chaos that that would be unacceptable. And that kind of anti-chaos approach is what drove Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh to side with the state in that case. So whether or not it's the right thing to do. That's certainly something that at least two or three of our justices have openly admitted that they, that they do take into account when they're considering these issues.
0: Is there any chance at all that Thomas would recuse himself from this case?
5: No. He has shown no predilection for recusing himself, even from cases that have been much more uh, in conflict than this would be. Cases involving his wife, cases involving parties that had given him millions of dollars, and so I don't presume that he would, though I think there's an argument and there may be some pressure put on him to do so.
0: Right. And, and what we're talking about, for those who aren't familiar, and I'm far from an expert, but there's certainly been, uh, you know, in previous investigations, maybe in Congress, instances of, of, of text messages and, and instances where it was seen that uh, the, the justice's wife was um you know, if not right in the middle of, uh, of everything that was going on and trying to prevent the, uh, the transfer of power, she was certainly adjacent to it. That's correct. Yes, very close.
5: And there have been issues come up before the court related to those events, and Justice Thomas has not recused himself. And it's one of the points of contentions of our American judiciary. Every court in the United States has recusal rules except for the Supreme Court. They say, just trust us, we'll do it when we want. But there's no there's no standards or rules that they follow to make that determination. And so it's just on their
0: honor. That's my kind of job. Just trust me. I'll do it. <laughs> uh, Doug, thanks for your time. It's a fascinating discussion. She is the owner of Punk Rock Pastries in Burnaby, British Columbia. A two-time Food Network champion, most recently... The Halloween Baking Champion of 2023 and also the Big Bake Canada Champion of 2019, Holly Fraser is on the program. Holly, thanks for coming on with us tonight. Thanks for having me. Uh, we've, We've been talking all things Christmas this week and one of the things we have yet to touch on is Christmas baking. So we thought we'd go to the biggest expert we know Uh, and the most crowned champion of the Food Network over recent history, uh, to kind of uh, fill us in. And the first thing I want to uh, ask you, and this is only uh, sort of a personal view, is I'm one of those that finds baking a little intimidating. Should I be intimidated to get in there and try and bake something for Christmas?
6: You know what? Anyone can bake. That's the best thing about baking. It's not intimidating as long as you follow the recipe. You know, you can definitely add little things here and there, but don't get carried away. You've got to stick
0: to the recipe. (laughs) Well, and that's, frankly, that's a little bit of what I find intimidating is it always seems so precise. Like other cooking, like you can you can season something differently every time and a little bit less of this spice and a little bit more of this spice and somehow it all works out. And, and when I look at the recipes and even if I go online or I look at a video, it just seems that, okay, there's about 20 steps to this and if I make one wrong turn, it may not, it may not turn out the way that I want it.
6: So I find that if you can get your base recipe down, say like you're making your basic shortbread cookie, if you get your base recipe down, then you can go ahead and you can add lemon or rosemary or gingerbread spices. You know, from there you can experiment. But as long as you've got your base recipe, you're good
0: to go. Okay, as long as we've got that base recipe that is uh, that is good to know. so what are some of the you know for people listening that that have yet to do Christmas baking or just want to do a little bit more Christmas baking? I know that's the case in our household we We're having a bit of a get together coming up on the weekend, and one of the items on our to do list is to do a little bit more Christmas baking. What are some of your favorites
6: so obviously i'm Australian. <laughs> But some of my favorites, um, I actually love making pavlova. There's nothing like a beautiful pavlova for Christmas Day. That's one of the most easiest recipes to make. You're just making a meringue. So you're just whipping egg whites and sugar together. So it's really, really easy. But lately, me and my son have actually been making gingerbread chocolate chip cookies, and they are to die for. So that's going to be my new holiday favorite.
0: Is that a specific recipe, or or is that something that Like, how do people get to that point?
6: Pretty much, this is just a recipe that we came up with. So this is where we had our base recipe, and then we decided, well, why don't we add some gingerbread spices in there? So we added, you know, a little bit of pumpkin spice, some ginger, nutmeg, and then we actually added our chocolate chips, and it turned out really, really good. So this is definitely something to try. If you've got gingerbread, chuck some chocolate chips in there. It works wonders.
0: Let me ask you about, you mentioned meringue, let me ask you about that. I have taken a crack at uh, lemon meringue pie a couple of times over the years. I will say um, it did seem to turn out quite well, but I can't get the meringue to stay as fluffy as it seems that the pros do. What, what am I doing incorrectly if, I, if it just doesn't, I don't know, if I can't remember now because it's been a while, if it didn't rise or it just kind of fell a little bit flat once it was in the oven. What am I doing wrong?
6: So there's a few things with meringue that you've got to really make sure that like are really good, otherwise they won't work at all. So when you go to whip your meringue, your bowl that you're using in your mixer has to be cleaned. Now, if you clean it out with vinegar before you put your egg whites in, that's going to help your meringue stay nice, light and fluffy. Anything that gets in there that's not meant to be in there, it will definitely damage your meringue and it won't get that really nice fluffiness that you want. The next thing is when you're separating your egg whites, you want to use fresh eggs. Can't use old eggs, can't use egg whites in a carton, they won't work. You need to use fresh eggs and you've got to separate them really well. So any little bit of egg yolk in them, it won't work, like at all.
0: (laughs) Holly, I'm curious, uh, in my very limited experience baking, and I do enjoy it, I, I just I don't know that i've I've had the confidence yet uh, to do a whole lot. Well one thing I have learned is just the incredible amount of sugar and the incredible amount of butter that goes into a lot of baking recipes. and you know sugar tastes great and so does butter. but for those who might want to uh, are there are there adequate substitutes? Are there more resources these days for recipes? So if one someone wants to bake something over the Christmas season that's a little bit healthier, uh, can they do that?
6: Oh, they definitely can. You can use natural sweeteners or you can use uh, stuff like condensed milk if they don't want to go the full sugar but they still want sweet but they can add a tiny bit. It's Using less is more kind of thing. Um, But using fresh fruits helps as well. If you want to go dairy-free, there's a lot of vegan butters out there now and we use a lot in our bakery and it's amazing what they can do. Tastes exactly like butter but it's not butter. And it's a little bit healthier, too.
0: <laughs> yeah, a little bit healthier. It, it, it does taste exactly like that. I'm always curious if, uh, uh, you know, I usually just go for the tried and true, but then I'm always curious if the if the stuff that might be labeled a little bit healthier, if I'm going to notice a difference. But you don't think so?
6: No, yeah. We do, like, uh, we change everything up. Like, we do our cakes that are vegan, and they taste exactly the same as our regular cakes. The same thing with our gluten-free. We make sure that our gluten-free tastes exactly the same as our regular
0: they're just different. <laughs> so I've uh, tried my hand at making pies a couple of times and I thought, well, if I'm going to make it, I'm going to, I'm going to make the crust myself. And to me, I mean, I don't even know. It's sort of like golf, like, and and believe me on the golf course, this doesn't happen very often, but every now and then I'll step up there and I'll knock one right <laughs> down the middle of the fairway. And I have no clue what I just did. Like, I literally have no clue what I did differently then fifteen minutes ago, when I shanked it a hundred yards into the bush, and I found that when I was baking, where I would make one, a pie crust, and go, well, that's a little. It feels a little. Uh, it, it's it. It feels a little tough. Uh, it doesn't seem to have the flavor that I thought it would. And then three months later, I'll make the same recipe, and it will be tender and it will be flavorful, and I have no idea what the difference was. So if we if we do bake something. Uh, that turns out great, or we turn out some, uh, we bake something that turns out, you know, not so great, how do we know what we did right or wrong? Like, how do we walk that back? Because I look at these recipes and it says, everything needs to be cold, but not too cold. And you need to mix it, but don't mix it too much. And you need to really need it, but not too much. And this, this part can't be mixed. It needs to be folded.
6: Do you know what? I have pretty much screwed up so many recipes <laughs> over, over my lifespan. Um, and the only way that um, you really know what you're doing is I actually write what I'm doing on my recipe book. So if I've got, you know, I've got to cream the butter and I've got to sh- cream the sugar together, I know how long I've got to cream it for. So I've got to cream it for 20 minutes. Otherwise, if I cream it too long, it's not going to work. Cream it too less, it's going to be too oily. You know, if I've got to knead it for a certain amount of time, I'm going to time myself and find out how long that time is. It's really getting it down to that science to know what exactly you're doing.
0: All right. So take notes and pay attention. And then yep. if you do it enough, you'll figure out what works for you <laughs> yeah. and, and what perhaps doesn't. That's very good advice. Now we are talking uh, Christmas baking, but I, I have to bring up uh, on one of the episodes, uh, you won the Halloween Baking Championship this past year. But you baked a cake in the shape of a Halloween, I think it was a candy bucket, but it was filled with oh, uh, there were guts and there were fingers good. and there were intestines and and there was a the severed hand. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Where does that where does that creativity that it's a very skillful thing uh, and a very creative thing that you were able to create there? Have you always had that in you? Have you always had was that always part of your repertoire as a baker?
6: I kind of always had that. I grew up in a bakery, so my dad was a baker. So I've always had flour and sugar running through my veins pretty much. Um, So when I do get to do like artistic things, I get to be a little bit more creative and with my flavors, I really like to go all in. And the one thing I wanted to do on the show is show them what I could do. Like first off, I was like, okay, on this first challenge, I'm going to show them exactly what I can do and I'm just going to go for it. And that's exactly what I did with the tiramisu. I just went a little bit crazy, you know, did my lady fingers, did my chocolate mousse, and then just went for it.
0: Well, it certainly turned out well, and uh, and everybody was impressed with it, and and rightly so, And, and we're so happy that you were able to join us uh, this evening and talk a little bit about uh, holiday baking and hopefully make it fun and accessible to people uh, so nobody is uh, intimidated to just get in there, get their hands dirty and, and whip something up. There's still time to get it ready for, uh, for this weekend for Christmas. Thanks, Holly.
6: No worries. Thanks for having me, guys, and happy holidays.